Hey everyone, and welcome to Be The Leader You Deserve podcast, where our mission is to inspire you to ask yourself, are you the leader you deserve? Hi, I'm Laura Donnelly. And I'm Jill Handley. And this is season four, episode four, Reimagining School with Personalized Learning featuring Kate Somerville. Last week, we talked with Tony Vincent as he shared his ideas about ShapeGrams and other technological innovations. They are so cool, and if you haven't checked them out yet, be sure to give it a listen in episode three. All right, we are so excited to introduce today's guest, Kate Somerville, because Jill and I were actually just able to attend a professional development with Kate through the Institute of Personalized Learning, and we were we loved her um, presentation style so much, we actually went back and modified some of our upcoming presentations because <laughs> we were like, man, yeah. hers is so good, we've got to go about modify ours. <laughs> not only that, but, you know, Kate kind of closed her presentation with one of my very favorite quotes of all time and told, and told a story that brought tears to my eyes. And it was like, okay, we've got to connect with this lady. <laughs> we, were, we are soul connections here. Absolutely. So welcome, Kate. We're so glad you joined us today. Thank you for inviting me. I am super honored and um, honestly a little humbled that I was in, I was asked to be a part of this. I am dying to know what was the quote. Please tell me which quote um, moved uh, you. Where kids have to Maslow before they bloom. Oh, absolutely. When you said that, I was like, oh, she's my person. Absolutely. So, uh, I've, I've got a t-shirt. I know uh, I presented a conference a couple of years ago and that's the t-shirt that I wore uh, when I presented. And so people are like, where did you get that? Fortunately, one of our coworkers has a cricket and gets to make, you know, all kinds of cool stuff and whatever <laughs> you want to say on it. But yeah, when you, like the, as if the presentation wasn't going well enough, we were already so immersed in your, in your PD. And then you, you, you kind of throw that on us. And I was like, okay, it, it's, you know, she's closed the deal here. This is, this is perfect. I love it. Well, I need to tell you then that part of our convening conference, um, he is one of our keynote speakers for our extended six weeks. So after this recording, let, I will reach out to you. And if I don't know if you've registered for our convening, but you should because you'll be able to see and um his, his speech and, and go through his breakout sessions. So that'd be awesome. I will definitely have to check that one out for sure. For sure. So Kate, well, before we get started, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So my name is Kate Somerville. Um, I am a professional development specialist with the Institute for Personalized Learning, uh, which is up here in Wisconsin. My office is out of Pewaukee, Wisconsin, which is a you know, just west of downtown Milwaukee. Um, but I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm the youngest of five kids, um, kind of a troublemaker out of the gate. Um, definitely <laughs> did not play school well, um, which is probably what landed me in my role around learner-centered practice and personalized learning. Um, I, I stumbled into education because I didn't like school all that much. And I figured, I knew that there were probably other kiddos in this world that were like me. Um, and so I wanted to shake up my classroom a little bit. So I actually started out as an art ed major um, and then shifted my world um, and went into special ed and then moved from special ed to regular ed. So I actually graduated with a regular ed and a special ed degree. And I spent 18 years in the classroom and I absolutely loved every minute of it. I spent those years um, bouncing between fourth and fifth grade um, in a in a suburban school district here in here in Wisconsin, just outside Milwaukee. The last four years that I was in the classroom, though, I had the opportunity to actually partner 
with the Institute for Personalized Learning and become part of a cohort group with um, some group of teachers from my school. And that was the first time that I had ever heard that phrase, personalized learning. And it was, um, we had a new rollover with administration in our building. And with that new rollover of administration came this idea of bringing innovative practices into your room. And so I was um, invited to be part of this cohort. And at the time I, I met my uh, teaching partner who I refer to as my work wife, uh, Angela. <laughs> and right, probably like the two of you. And she, um, her and I um, sort of dug into this idea of what if our classroom could be different. And so um, those last four years, as I partnered with the Institute, I got to sort of implement and learn more about personalized learning. I learned about the framework, the honeycomb model, looked at the elements and actually sort of lived and breathed the work that I now get to coach educators in schools and districts on. So I, I feel like I sort of came full circle. Um, Angela and I taught um, a group of students, 50 students in a, in a large cohort. We had two full-time teachers and we looped with them from fourth to fifth grade. And then we sort of shipped them off to middle school. And then we came back and did that same routine again with another group of fourth and moved with them up to fifth grade. And after our four years together, we were both sort of looking to um, expand our wings a little bit. Angela became a principal, an elementary principal in a local school district. And I um, had the honor of joining the Institute team as a professional development specialist. So I got to bring in all of those experiences um, and the struggles and the, um, the work that goes into it and, and bring that in as I sort of support educators and teachers and, and districts as they're starting to implement and make that shift towards personalized learning. Well, you know what, Kate, you and I um, actually have more in common than I thought. So I too am dual certified. Um, Same. I, Love it. I, I too, the last few years of my teaching career, uh, had actually a four or five split and partnered with some, my partner teacher at the time, my partner for four years. Yes. Um, we, we both had a four or five split. And so we, uh, we worked with those kiddos to, uh, to loop every year. So, so how about that? And I, and then we, she and I split up and I went on to become a principal and she went on to become an instructional resource teacher. Yeah. Uh, so we, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's very, uh, our stories are very similar to some degree. I love that. Uh, and I, and I, I think, um, you know, it, it's so obvious when we were in your presentation that you've, you've never forgotten. I think great presenters never forget what it's, you know, through the lens of whom your audience yes. is. So you can always, t you know, you having that practitioner, view to take to your presentation, I think makes it so much more enjoyable and so much more your passion just leads through because you, you've actually walked the walk with kids. Yes. Um, yes. And, and that, that means a lot to teachers. I know as, you know, as leaders, I always try to continue to, to, to be mindful of what teachers have to go through. You yeah. know, I think sometimes when we get out of the classroom, we see all, you know, we read all this stuff and we, we learn about all this and we have all these great ideas. And then, you know, if we don't listen to the teachers to say, yeah, but you know, not, but I can't, but have you considered, no, I haven't considered that. So I think, you know, just being mindful of, of, who your audience is, it was so obvious that you continue to carry that passion in your presentation style. Absolutely. Well, thank you. 
So, Kate, um, this season we're talking about, um, you know, you said one of the one of the quote, what you just said, when you talked with Angela about was, well, what if? And so I love that because one of the things we're talking about, well, actually, the thing we're talking about this season is um, what if kind of reimagining school back in season two, um, we one of our guests was our chief academic officer, Dr. Carmen Coleman. And so during her interview, we kind of talked about one of the questions I think we asked was, if you could design a perfect school without limitations, what would it look like? And so after her interview, Laura and I started thinking, what if, you know, and then with everything we've learned through, you know, the pandemic and teaching online and how school can never look the same again. Um, so, so when, so I think there are probably lots of people across the nation that are doing that. And so sometimes people really just gravitate to personalized learning. And so it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. <laughs> so being, being part of, um, the Institute for Personalized Learning. Um, how do you define personalized learning and kind of what does that term mean to you? Absolutely. Well, I think we all have different context around that phrase. I think people hear the phrase personalized learning and many ideas, thoughts, words, um, honestly, mindsets probably pop into the heads of those individuals. And those are typically based on our experiences, our assumptions, um, and or the context you have around the work. Uh, I'll swing back to the Institute's definition. And then, of course, being Kate, I'm going to bring in my own my own <laughs> twist on that. Um, the Institute at the Institute, we define personalized learning as really this approach to learning and instruction that's designed around the learner's readiness, their strengths, their needs, their interests. Um, we want learners to be active participants in setting their goals, planning out pathways, tracking progress. Um, and ultimately really determining how learning is going to be demonstrated. Uh, we try to acknowledge that those learning objectives, the content, the method, the pacing may vary from learner to learner. And one of the things that always um, sticks out for me in our definition is that in a fully personalized environment, we move beyond both differentiation and individualization. Now, when we, we often joke at the Institute that our definition is lengthy. And so depending on who you speak to, you know, certain things kind of ring true to us as individuals based on our context and or based on our own, you know, personal experiences, our lifeline, if you want to call it, for um, education, right? So I think for me, you know, when you ask me how I define personalized learning, personalized learning is really about creating equitable experiences for our learners. We want our kids engaged in authentically relevant work um, that they can see themselves in. You know, it's about increasing agency. It's about making a shift in the role of the educator and the learner. And when Angela and I talked about that what if moment, it was it was that moment where what if we weren't the bearers of all knowledge? What because we knew we weren't, right? What if what if we allowed that voice to come through? What if they had a say in in some of what's happening within their educational experience? And you know, really moving from this educator-driven environment to one that's much more learner driven. It's about allowing learners to kind of co-design alongside you. It's about giving them some autonomy and hopefully developing some agency. And I think in a lot of ways, when I think of the phrase personalized learning, um, I often use the term learner centered 
synonymously, right? Learner-centered practice is about empowering our learners. Um, it's about moving beyond engagement. Because when we engage our kids, we're still, we as the educators are still doing too much work. We are still dog and pony showing it. We are showing up, we're dancing, we're getting them excited about our content, but we want them to get excited and feel empowered about the work that's in front of them. And so it's about supporting them and providing them an opportunity to really take on more of an active role in their educational journey. Um, you know, I think in terms of building within them the capacity and the drive to want to learn for life, um, finding ways to sort of create experiences or co-design learning experiences that balance the development of the learner and the learning. Um, for a long, long time as a classroom teacher, and, and if you're principals, I promise you, you probably have some walkthrough tool um, that really has us looking at the learning that's occurring in the classroom, right? And for a long time, we've been very intentional about that learning that occurs in the classroom. And oftentimes, it may have been more intentionality around the instruction um, of mm -hmm. what's happening, the actual teaching. But, you know, in my mm -hmm. opinion, in a personalized environment, the true currency is learning and the development of the learner. And so, mm -hmm. you know, when I think about defining personalized learning, it's finding a balance between developing the learning and the content. I'm a mom. I want my kids reading on grade level. I want to know they're meeting their standards. I want all of that. But I also want to develop within them the learner. I want to develop those essential skills that we know they're going to need to be successful. And so I feel like throughout my time in the classroom and now as a professional development specialist, the one thing when I think in terms of like defining personalized learning, it's not something that you do on Fridays or you do every other week. It's something you believe in. You know, it's it's a philosophy. It's in your core. It's in your gut. And so one of the things we always say is we share our definition. But what we really want is for you to look at yourself, look at your school, look at your learners, look at all of your stakeholders. And ultimately, you have to figure out what that definition really means to you and how that comes into play. You know what's going to shake out well in a district versus what's not going to go over well with families. And so how do we tackle personalized learning in a way that's um, putting the learner at the center? Um, because you can't argue that, you know, people will say, I, you know, I don't want to do personalized learning. I don't believe in that philosophy, but nobody's going to argue with putting the learner at the center of their educational journey. That is such a powerful statement. I love that you said moving beyond differentiation and, and individualization, because I think that was one of the places where as like a first conversation, we got so hung up as a staff, like we were talking about, well, we already differentiate. So what's the difference? But it's moving. It's really moving beyond that. What else are we doing yep. to empower students? And I love that, that learner, learner centered um, philosophy, because that that is not the reality, I think, of most current education. No, and I think um, the takeaway from your answer that you just gave too that really kind of shifted my thinking was even with, like you said, if, if I'm individualizing for kids, if I'm differentiating, that's that's still good practice. For sure. And we still want to do some of that. However, that's still me as the teacher 
doing the work or doing all of the planning or doing all, you know, having all the autonomy of what's going on. And so that's what was so powerful is when you start to think about, you know, who's, who's really doing the work here. Um, And and that's, that's where we're wanting to focus is getting Mm -hmm. the student more involved. And and like you said, developing agency. Well, and I think when you, when you think in terms of individualization, because oftentimes, you know, I'll throw out, I probably threw it out to you too. Like what words come to mind when you hear the phrase personalized learning, people very quickly Mm -hmm. say it's individualized. And I agree with that in a lot of ways. But I also, um, I don't want to say disagree, but I'll also push back because there's a lot of individualized um, technology programs out there that kids can tap into and they can be working on um, that will target their specific level of um, where am I as a reader? Where am I as a mathematician? But it's not very personalized in a lot of ways because in my brain, when we are in a personalized environment, we're developing the learner and the learning. And in a lot, when we t- start to tap into a lot of technology tools and a lot of those individualized tools like Khan Academy and Raz Kids and Dreambox, which I used as a classroom teacher and I needed them, but I didn't want my kids only on those tools because it didn't allow them to develop themselves as a learner. We didn't get to collaborate. We didn't you know, think creatively or critically when I'm tapped into just a tech tool. And so I think that there's a place um, in every classroom for differentiation, for individualization, for personalization, and quite frankly, for direct instruction. Um, you know, that's... I, I, will, I will say, Kate, and I, I don't need to cut you off, but when you said that, when you said that in the PD, and by the way, I'm going to give a plug for your old boot camp. If, um, the, um, if, if, if our listeners haven't, you know, plugged into that, that was amazing. We were so fortunate. Um, one of the benefits from being teaching in a pandemic was that our entire instructional staff was able to attend that. But you guys went through kind of like, and I won't kind of steal it, tender, but the example, the, the, the ice yes. cream example that you went through that really kind of gave, talked about what you just said, which was, there's a place for all of those things. And when you even said direct instruction, which I think people who are, who, uh, there, there are certain programs that I won't mention, but I know way back when, when I first started, um, you know, direct instruction has gotten a bad rap over, um, over the years, but so I'm going to replace it with explicit instruction. um, Whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, sometimes gets a bad rap, but I think that that in and of itself, I watched on camera so many of our staff members when at, when you went through that and you could see people go, oh, okay, so you don't no. mean personalized pathway no. for every single kid, every single no. minute of every single Certain day. And so skills I, I'm I not going to drop into the hands of these kids. <laughs> I mean, my own two children have been learning virtually for a year, ladies, and there are skills. They're not, fractions with unlike denominators is not going to naturally drop <laughs> into my son's lap. Trust me, there needs to be some direct instruction. It's just honoring what those learners know, what they don't know, and moving them forward from there at a pace that they can handle. Um, you know, for two, it's no different than what we as an educator would want from our professional development. I do not want to sit through a PD on uh, Google Apps for Education. I live and breathe Google all day long. I know the ins and outs of docs, slides, spreadsheets, whatever you've got for me, 
please don't make me sit through that. I know that already. Now there are other areas of, exp of you know, that I am interested in and that I need to grow in. Competency-based education, that's something I am dying to spend more time learning about. So let me spend my time learning about that because I already have this other skill. Every educator I've ever met wants that. Guess what? So do your learners. Such a great analogy. Well, and I think the ice cream example kind of brings us into that next question. What are some of the top <laughs> misconceptions about? Oh my gosh, there learning? are so many. Um, <laughs> there are so many, and I think that um, I I didn't even know what personalized learning was when I started my journey, um, and so I feel like I've I've lived every single one of these misconceptions. But I think. Probably the number one thing I'd say is there is no recipe for personalized learning. There is no one way to do it. And if anybody is trying to sell you a book that walks you through, do this, do that, do that, they're just trying to sell you a book. Um, but isn't that what everybody yep, wants? Of course. To move of into course. <laughs> yes. Every educator is amazing and they want to know the how, right? They want to know how to do it. I was that person. Um, you know, personalized learning, though, is a belief, it's a philosophy. And so oftentimes, um, you know, to sort of help remedy that misconception, districts or organizations will sort of develop a look for or adopt um, certain elements that they want to bring to life. And so I'll share some resources that you can share out with your audience um, afterwards. We've created a, a list of look fors um, and a framework. Um, but I think the number one misconception is there's there's really no recipe. Um Another one is that. this is not an IEP for every single learner, nor, and you, you addressed mm -hmm. this a few minutes ago, nor it does it mean that every single kid in your class needs that separate pathway. You know, really what we're doing is using pre-assessment data, using formative check-ins um, to allow learners, not just the educator, to allow learners to determine where they're at and what they're ready for. You know, so if I give a pre-assessment or an entrance ticket, get that back into the hands of the kids and honor where they're at. If they can show you that they know this information, do they need to sit through this instruction? Do they need that mini lesson or could they go somewhere else? Could they access some other material? Um, you know, another misconception I think is around this idea of choice, right? In learner-centered environments, interests and passions definitely come into play, but it does not mean that learners get to choose whatever they want to learn whenever they want to learn it. It really means that educators help the learners understand the standards and then help them de determine what standards they're working on, what standards they're working towards. So learners may have choice in a task. They may have choice in how they show proficiency. Um, and the standards should really guide that choice and that learning. You know, I didn't have every kid in my math class functioning out of all, all five domains, right? I knew we were functioning within the fractions domain. But I needed to honor the fact that Colin was light years ahead than Kate. And so if Kate needs a little extra support and Colin already has this standard, Colin needs to be working on something else. It doesn't mean he doesn't need direct instruction. He does. He just doesn't need it on adding and subtracting fractions with like denominators because he already knows that. You know, I think that that's that idea around direct instruction. It's not a four letter word. 
Um, we want to move away from teacher-driven instruction, but that doesn't mean that there should be a total rejection. It's important and it's necessary throughout the day. Um, but with that said, the direct instruction that, you know, that we want our educators to bring forth, it doesn't have to be whole group. Uh, it could be done in small group or even one-on-one. -on -one. And so educators should never feel like implementation means that they have to change everything they're doing. It's really about looking at elements of learner-centered practice and, and figuring out, um, you know, what are you already bringing forth in this in in the world and, and how can you make it more learner-driven? A perfect example of that was with goal setting in my classroom. And I gave pre-assessments every single year I ever taught because that's what the everyday math curriculum told me to do. That on a given day, I was supposed to administer this pre-assessment and then I was supposed to grade it, right? What the everyday math curriculum never told me is that I'm supposed to use that pre-assessment data to change the instruction that takes place in my classroom. My kids loved pre-assessment day because I had many of them that would write IDK at the top and draw an arrow all the way down, which stood for, I don't know. And I would get so angry and I'd say, what do you mean you don't know? What do you mean you don't? I know you know this. You guys, I looped with you last year. I taught you this last year. And they, one, one brave little soul in my class finally stood up and said, well, I know, but what does it matter if I know, if I show you that I know you're not going to do anything about it? And, that was right? the truth coming I mean, that was like <laughs> a knock in the gut. And I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, I could solve every, he said, I can solve every problem on this pre-test pre correctly. What's going to change? And I that's, right. That's and so at that moment, I told every kid in my classroom, throw that pre-assessment away, throw it away. We're sitting down and we started to talk through what what is a pretest? What's the purpose of the pretest? Why do we take the pretest? What do I as an educator need to do with the pretest? And that was the last day um, I graded pretests, but no longer did they sit in the coat closet, stacking up and stacking up. When I was done grading the pretest, I put it back into the hands of the kids. They analyzed what standards they were proficient at, what standards they were still developing at, what standards they didn't have a clue about, and then that drove what they needed. But with that, I needed to then teach kids how to take a pretest that you have to give me something. If we're multiplying multi-digit problems, two-digit by two-digit problems, can you do any of this? Because if you can even get to the ones column, right, then I know you're there. But I know that when once we jump over to the tens, something trips up in your mind and you don't know where to go. That tells me something as an educator and how to support you. And so I had to t teach the kids how to take a pre-assessment. But then I, as the teacher, had to be willing to do something with it right? I had to honor where they were at and move them forward from there. And so I think that for me, you know, when we talk about setting goals, the kids would say, well, you set the goals for us. Can we set the goals? And I'd say, yes, let's analyze that pretest. Let's figure out where you're at. Let's see what goals you want to set for yourself and let's move forward from there. And that was, um, that was huge for me. Um, I think that's I think that's one of the biggest game changers for educators um, is is and I think that's one of the biggest 
I think common mistakes, I would go on the limb to say that lots of educators make is I gave a pre-assessment because yep. that's what I was supposed to do, but then what, but, but I did, but I, but it didn't yep. change anything that I did as, as that, that really actually, you know, happened with our staff. Gosh, we went to, um, we went to a conference, an NCTM conference, probably six, seven years ago. And so we, we saw this design of an assessment that had pre-assessment, current content, and then um, kind of like um, a review content. And so yeah. we thought, oh, we like that. Well, what we, what we noticed quickly was that, guess what? Lots of kids got the pre-assessment yep. questions wrong. Right. And then we did nothing about it, you know, and, and it's like, oh, well, they don't know what's 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 up yeah, and coming. Of course they don't. Her, right. They don't know. Or or or. Wow. They, they know this either way. Right. We still went right along with the next unit that we had designed. And so at that point, we we're like, you know what? We're not going to continue to give pre-assessments because we at that yep. time were not in a place to know what to do and and and, and ready to make that shift to, to, at that sure. point, differentiate our instruction based on the pre-assessment needs. So I think that's, um, I think that's a pretty common, um, pretty common mistake that lots of people, well, they will admit it. You know, I think lots of people like to say, well, I give pre-assessments because that's the buzz term of what you're supposed to do. But, you know, thinking about the so what that comes after that is, is probably the missing well, piece I think for so too, many it's, educators. It's shifting, you know, we often talk about shifting from educator-driven to learner-driven. But what you're really talking about is shifting from curriculum driven to educator driven to learner driven, because yes. I can remember and it might have been that pre-assessment day in my classroom. That day in my classroom was the day that I stopped teaching everyday math. And I'm not dissing everyday math or whatever bridges math. They're all amazing tools. Right. But that was the day I stopped mm -hmm. teaching everyday math and started teaching mathematicians. Because everyday math told mm -hmm. me when to when to give the pre-assessment. They told me when to teach lesson one, lesson two, lesson three. It didn't matter where my kids were at. That was also the day right. that I stopped giving the pre-assessment at the beginning of the unit. So this is a plug to any teacher out there because this seemed like a really duh moment for me. But it was a huge aha moment. We gave pre-assessments in the middle of the previous unit. And that seemed like, what are you talking about? But we would get through about halfway through our unit and we'd take a pause and we'd take a moment to give the pre-assessment data. The reason we did that was that gave Angela and I an opportunity to assess the pre-assessment data, analyze what the pre-assessment data was telling us and make a preliminary plan for those 50 kids. What do these kids know? What do they need to know? Where are they headed next? And then we continue on with the rest of our current unit and give the post-assessment. What that also allowed us to do is that when we finished that post-test, we gave the post-assessment and the very next day we could start instruction because we had two weeks, three weeks of looking at pre-assessment data, discovering what kids knew, what they didn't know. And so we started pre-assessing mid-unit for the next unit and that otherwise I felt like there was, I didn't have time to do anything with that pre-assessment data. I gave a post-test, I graded it, I gave a pre-test, I graded it and I taught lesson <laughs> four, three, four, one. There was no planning. And so, you know, I mean, it, by giving, no. And I think that's, 
sorry i i just i think that's why exactly. we don't do anything with pre-assessments because we give them right before we start supposed we, to start teaching the we unit don't have time what are you going to do for three days for the anything. kids can't sit there and twiddle their thumbs right and so yeah. we started giving it mid-unit yeah. and then that allowed us to we could even tap certain kids on the pre-assessment and say hey let's revisit this you know, just take a peek at this. It, you know, we weren't using pre-assessments as, you know, I, I caught you doing something wrong. It was, is this just a, you know, can this be a five second, you know, turnaround to give them an opportunity to double check themselves? And so that was part of that learning process. When we taught the kids how to take a pre-assessment, we as educators learned when to give a pre-assessment and quite frankly, what to do with the pre, what, with that formative data. So. Um, I, I would yeah, be, I, I have to give one more misconception because I feel like it's the b biggest misconception out there. Um, and so I don't want to forget about it. Um, personalized learning is not a technology initiative. Um, it is not about our learners sitting on devices all day with them hooked up into online platforms or on online learning games. Um, I am, I am a lover of technology. Um, and I feel it plays a very important role. Um, but that role is should be to enhance the instruction. Um, it it can provide incredible opportunities for our learners, but it's really important that the technology that we are putting in front of our kids is not just replacing a worksheet or some monotonous task. Um, and that's a balancing act, uh, which I've I've walked. Um, we really want technology that provides the learners with some sort of interactive opportunity to engage. Um, it should enhance that learning experience. Uh, it should be creating sort of these extension opportunities. Um, and so I think that we as, as you know, I as a, as a professional learning specialist really want to introduce educators to different types of learning models, talking in terms of station rotation or flipped lessons or workshop models or blended learning opportunities that really allow, allow us to have a balanced approach to technology use. Um, because when we have that balanced approach and when we utilize it um, to the, to, to the best of its ability, it does provide us as educators more one-on-one -on -one time with our learners. Um, and so, but I, I have to say that we have to go back to what personalized learning really is. And that's about developing the learning and the learner. And so if we're just sitting on, you know, a, a tech platform or an individualized digital program LD, that's not developing those learner skills or those essential skills that we know our learners need. So I just needed to say that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that was misconception oh, we probably uh, you know, had as well it, it, so. well when when i was in the classroom this change in my classroom came forth at the same time that our students be, you know became one to one with devices so our families initially thought that this is a tech initiative and they didn't know any better and i can't begrudge them that but we needed to educate them and we needed to be open and and transparent and and help them realize that your kids aren't coming to school all day and sitting on their computers. They're not. You know, I would be way too bored if that was the situation. And a bored Kate is never good. <laughs> never good. Bad things happen. Bad things happen. Well, and our next question, I think you've already answered this a little bit with the um, 
look fors and um, some of the other things that you've mentioned. But when we started talking about personalized learning as a school, the task mm-hmm. seems so overwhelming. What are some small steps that schools can take to start introducing? And, and maybe yeah. the, this pre-assessment piece is part of that as well. But what are some small steps that schools can start to um, to take to start in- introducing personalized yeah. learning without diving in? Like That's a great question. And, um, and I'm glad that you asked it because um, the key to implementing the learner-centered practice is to start small and to take baby steps. And that is not good for educators because I have met very few educators that want to do anything sort of. They either don't want to do it at all. No, thank mm-hmm. you. Feet, you know, heels in the ground. No, thank you. Or they want to dive head first. And I can respect that because I was the teacher that wanted to dive in head first. Um, and so I feel like educators Same. often want to start with how to make this come to life in their classroom. And I get that, but it's really, really important in my opinion, um, maybe even more important from the how to really develop a strong why statement. What is your why for wanting to do this? And I don't mean, well, because it's right by kids or because it feels good. Like, what is your why? Um, For me in my classroom, when Angela and I did not come up with a why statement. We jumped headfirst into the how and it came back to bite us <laughs> on a soccer field. Angela was a parent in the community. So she sat on the soccer sidelines with a lot of our families, a lot of our stakeholders. I live in the city, far away from the suburbs. And so I was not, I wasn't there, <laughs> but it, the parents didn't want to know how we were doing it. The parents wanted to know why we were doing it. And so Angela and I really had to take a step back to talk about why are we doing this? And for us, our why became, you know, I can engage these kids for 180 days. I can make them love school. I can make them love showing up. I can have fun with them. I can become the favorite teacher for maybe half of them, right? I can do that. I did that for 13 years, very successfully, prior to implementing learner-centered practice. But it's not about engaging them for 180 days. It's about empowering them for life so that when they come back to me as juniors in high school, they can talk about all the things that they learned outside of my standards and my curriculum that's preparing them for whatever they're doing down the road, whether that's going to college jumping into the workforce. I don't care what they do, but I wanted to know that I was empowering them to have a voice, to be able to collaborate, to build teamwork. And I feel like as, you know, one small step you can do is to determine what is your why. You know, come together as a school, draft that why statement. What are you doing? Um, Why are you doing this? And then from there, I feel like educators need to acknowledge What elements of learner-centered practice are you already implementing? Because I promise you, you're doing a lot. I'll share with you our our framework, our honeycomb model. You, You can choose to share it out with your audience if you so desire. But within that framework, we have a layer, which is our learning Um, and teaching elements. And it's purposely not called the teaching and learning elements. They're learning and teaching elements because the learning should come first. 
too often we have um, directors of curriculum and instruction, right? But we need directors of learning. And so what we, what you can do is look at these elements, these orange elements, and figure out what of these am I, am I already dabbling with? What's of interest to you? Are you tackling goal setting? Are you conferring with learners? Chances are yes. Um, maybe you want to dive into cur more curiosity-driven learning or a genius hour approach. And we often tell our educators, create a constellation. Uh, and what we mean by a constellation is pick two or three elements that you want to dabble with and try. And then go from there. Open up your doors. See, you know, Invite people in. Give it a go. Talk to your kids. See what happens. Um, and I feel like that constellation really helps. We, we made our kids, because I sat through this cohort as a participant, as a teacher, right? And I knew what these elements were that I wanted to try, but I made my 50 kids aware of them. So I said, you guys, I want to bring more wonder into our classroom. I want to bring more. I want to hear your voice more. I want choice coming into play. And I want you to start co-designing with me. And they're like, what, is, what do those things mean? We talked about what that meant. And then we put them on the board. And I will tell you, you throw that into the hands of a 10-year-old and they are going to hold you accountable way more than your principal will. My principal <laughs> steps foot in that classroom maybe once, twice that year. But those kids show up every day for 180 days. And they're going to say to you, I thought we were going to have more choice. Where is it, Somerville? I'm not having any choice. And I'm like, dang, you're right, kid. All right, here we go. You know, and, and that's that's what I want from the relationship with these students is they're holding me accountable. Um, yeah. I love that. Sure. Talk about pub public accountability. It doesn't get any. It doesn't get any better than that. And Kate, I know that one of the things that um, that was part of the professional development that we engaged in as a staff mm -hmm. was that what are you already doing? And I can tell you that um, just experiencing that first step that relieves sure. so much anxiety from our staff because, like you mentioned, you know that when you say personalized learning and you've got sixty staff members, there are probably sixty different. Um, definitions of that. So when they yep. were able to say, oh, so that's part of it. Why am I doing that? Yep. And that does release so much anxiety from staff. So I can certainly sure. testify to that. So let me ask you this. Um, clearly, there are um, some some non-negotiables um, or yep. conditions that, that really kind of need to be in place within a school uh, before they can start to implement. And I don't mean like it looks perfectly like this, but in your experience in working with schools, uh, what are, in your opinion, some non-negotiables or conditions that, that schools really must have in For place sure. before they really um, kind of start to dabble in this? You need your why in place. You need to know why you're doing this so that you're not caught off guard and so you're not questioning it. You got to figure out how you can tap in, especially to those educators that are reluctant um, because you're going to have them. Um, you're going to have colleagues. I sat on a team with some very reluctant colleagues. No, thank you. You can drink that Kool-Aid. I don't want it. I don't want to taste it. No, thank you. And so you have to be strong in your why and, and then ultimately how you're defining it. I think some non-negotiables are what is this going to look like in my classroom? That Those are those look fors that we talk about, right? Um I can tell you what it looked like in my classroom. I can tell you what it looks like in a lot of the classrooms that we um, navigate and that we uh, have on our field experiences and on our site visits, but we all have different stakeholders. And so what are those look fors that you're hoping to establish? For me in my classroom, it was teamwork, collaboration. It was purposeful learning. 
It was that my kids could articulate. We had hundreds and hundreds of teachers walk through our classroom in those four years. And those teachers wanted to talk to me. And every time I said, they'd say, well, can I ask you some questions? I said, you can, but I want you to go ask a kid in my classroom that question before you ask it of me. Because if a learner can answer that question, which they should be able to, then you don't need to hear from me. Um, so what are, you know, how are you putting that ownership in the classroom back on the kids? Another non-negotiable is strong relationships and a community built on trust. Um, those relationships are amongst, you know, that's what th makes this work successful. It's personalized learning is all about developing relationships, educators to admin, educators to learners, educators to educators, learners to learners, families. Um, it's all about building those relationships and, and probably the most important relationship is helping the learner to learner relationship and learner to self, meaning our kids need to discover who they are, what is their identity, who are they as a person, can they identify their strengths, their areas for growth, can they honor those areas for growth? Can they look at their colleague, their teammate and say, you know, I'm a struggling reader and that's okay. Um, I need your help with this standard. I, Mrs. Somerville's busy right now. Can you help me with this? The minute kids can acknowledge some of their areas for growth, and we purposely called them areas for growth, not weaknesses, because we all have them. For me, my biggest area for growth was be quiet. Stop talking so much. Let these kids talk, right? And I owned that. And when I was sitting with kids and I talked too much, I gave them permission to say, you can tap me when I've said too much. Because for me, it's just a level of comfortability. I don't like quiet. I don't like silence. I'm kind of a, you know, ADHD kid in the group. And so, you know, they would tap me and they say, we got it, Somerville. Right, we got it. And I'd say, okay, that's my cue to be quiet. Because once a learner knows themselves, they can use that information to advocate and ultimately to help design, co-design with you. Um, this idea of a strong community and culture is key, is key to success. Um, this idea of a trusting environment with supportive administration. You know, when I was in the classroom, I knew that things were not going to be picture perfect. I knew there was going to be messiness. We called it controlled chaos. There was going to be controlled chaos at times, but it was a lot easier for me to take take risks, to ask my learners to take risks, to help allow my learners to drive when I knew that I had the trust and the support of my administration and my families. And, and that, fo that forced me to open my doors. Um, some non-negotiables um, uh, that I would say is open up the doors to your admin, to your families, let them see to your colleagues, see what's happening, not to catch you doing something not great, but to catch you doing something super great or to catch you doing something that's not feeling so great, but you want some constructive criticism on, you know, I never, oh, we did open our doors when we were celebrating and it's really easy to open your doors when you're having an author's tea or you're doing something really amazing, rock star status. It's a lot more vulnerable to open your doors when you say, Hey, I started student-led conferencing, and this is our first day. Can you come and watch and just see what you see from an outsider's perspective? 
because as a classroom teacher, you're too busy. You're in the trenches. You're working. And so to have that level of trust, to be able to say that to my admin or my coaches or my colleagues, they're not watching me. They're dialoguing with kids. They're talking about what's happening. And that changed my practice. Don't get me wrong. I was terrified. Terrified, terrified, terrified of ridicule, of criticism, of doing the wrong thing, of not meeting educator effectiveness, of everything else, right? But it's what pushed my practice forward. And I think we do. I think, I think that probably says, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think that says so much about, um, you know, your administration, though, because Everything that we do, I think, you know, Laura and I, we kind of hang our hats on, you know, mm -hmm. really establishing a strong culture and, and offering words of wisdom and strategies for implementing that. Because I think at the end of the day, anything yep. new is going to be scary. We know that. And so I think that kind of, you know, sits on the heels of how, how strong and trusting is your culture. And I know from a principal's perspective, how awesome it is when I have a teacher who does just that. And that's what I tell them, you know, all the time, like, I don't need to see it great. Like, not that, you know, but I think that that has to come into understanding your role as a yep. principal between evaluator and coaching and not, let, and not letting those two cross over. I, you know, we have, we have a couple of teachers, I think of one in particular um, at our, our, our school. And she does that all the time. Hey, I, I just started, it reminded me, you said that I just started this. Um, I don't know how it's going, but can you come back and give me some feedback? And that just feels so good, one, to affirm that it's a trusting culture, but two, that, wow, yeah, I'd love sure. to get and give some honest feedback about that. Um, so so I, I'm so glad to hear you affirming just a positive culture. Absolutely. Is, is, you know, I think that goes across everything is, is a trusting culture is a non-negotiable. So another question we have is... Um, a buzzword that I think we've heard a lot, we might have even said a lot, um, that it goes along with per oh. personalized learning is personalized pathways. And I think that's another one that people might sure. um, have a lot of different interpretations for. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more um, for, through your lens when you hear or say personalized sure. pathways? Um, yeah, I was terrified by here? that because I thought um, this addresses one of those misconceptions that every kid's kid needs to be functioning on a different pathway, right? Um, and in my opinion, not the case. In a personalized environment, our learners need to know themselves the best. It goes back to who are you, that learner. For, for us at the Institute, we call that their learner profile. You know, who, you, who are you as a learner? What are your strengths? What are your areas for growth? What are your interests, your passions? What are some of your academic goals? non-academic goals, right? Knowing that about yourself, then learners can use that information to advocate and to better understand what is that learning path. So what, how I, we look at learning pathways, it's really sort of a roadmap for our learners. Now, ideally, we would love for these pathways to be jointly developed, right? Um, but realistically, that our educators and our learners might not be ready for that. And so what we really wanna do is provide learners an opportunity to explore either what they're gonna learn or how they're gonna learn it and or how they'll demonstrate their learning or their understanding. And it, it brings into that idea of choice. Now, when we talk about customized learning pathways or sometimes people refer to them as playlists, right? These should be created and aligned to standards. 
not specific students or not specific learners. That way, learners or hopefully groups of learners can access those pathways or access those playlists when they're ready. So we would love for the playlists to be co-designed, but just as important, we want learners to understand what they're ready for, where they're headed. You know, it's that whole learning cycle. What am I, what am I ready for? What am I going to learn? How am I going to learn it? How, how and when am I going to demonstrate the learning? And that kind of ties back into that pre-assessment data. So for our classroom, you know, it was really this understanding of getting getting those pretests back into the hands of the kids, helping them understand what standards are you still developing at, and then what pathways, if I still have X standard to tackle, what playlist or what pathway can I tap into to support that learning? And to honor the fact that not every single kid is going to need a direct instruction mini lesson or maxi lesson on that given standard, right? And I, I we always talked in terms of mini lessons, but sometimes there were a lot of maxi lessons, you know? And so when we talk about <laughs> pathways, you know, teams that are just getting started would really benefit from diving deeper into the standards and then looking at materials that they have or resources that they have to support the instruction and the practice of that standard. And then maybe working collaboratively to create some of these pathways or playlists for their learners to use. Um, and then the educator needs to help the learners understand those standards and where they fall and maybe which pathway and playlist to pick up. Now, as kids function within a playlist or in a pathway, I definitely had kids that were light years ahead. You know, my Colin was so far ahead in the math world. He wasn't even functioning within the fifth grade standards. He was really functioning in sixth, seventh grade standards. So that was an opportunity for him and I to sit down and sort of co-design. But many of my kids weren't ready for that co-designing piece yet. Our kids have played school and the game of school for a long time. They need supports in place. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they need me to dictate everything. We want to offer some choices. And I feel like that's what customized pathways or personalized playlists do is that if you can align them to standards, then kids know if I'm working on this standard, this might be a, a playlist that I'm going to go to. Now, when we talk about examples of pathways, we could be looking at a variety of different methods. This could be um, hyperdocs or choice boards, playlists, sometimes people call them playlists. Um, even to a certain extent, genius hour or 20% time could be that customized learning path. And uh, ironically, I was, talking with a group from Kansas, literally right before this podcast recording. And at the end, this gentleman, Richie said, Hey, Kate, do you have 15 minutes? And I said, I've got about that, Richie. <laughs> That's like literally. And so he said, well, this is what I'm, this is, this is what I'm doing with my sixth graders in math. Can you kind of coach me through, is this the right thing to do? And I said, Richie, what I think you want to start to do is start to develop some hyperdocs or some playlists for your kiddos. Because he was trying to be um, the end-all, be-all you know, person for every kid at every step of the way. And I said, you're going to have learners that need you for that direct instruction, but you've got other kids in your class that they can tap into some of that individualized technology. Um, 
for some of that work. That's one of those moments we need that individualized instruction. That's not to say that they don't need you as the classroom teacher. They will need you. But let's, let's you know, while you're working with this small group of kids, maybe they can be tapping into Khan Academy or maybe they can be working on Dreambox and then swing back to those kids because they're, at, they're on a different pathway. They're on a different playlist. And, you know, I said, give yourself some grace. That's not to say that every kid in your class has to be functioning, you know, some in measurement and some in fractions and some in algebraic thinking. No, no, no. We can all be within the same domain, but that's not to say that kids are all functioning within that standard at the same level. And so, you know, that's that's sort of where my brain goes to when I hear customized learning paths or or those um, playlists. And and um, I don't want to do too much plugging, but we do have an awesome um, self-paced course and virtual live course on multiple instructional methods and modes. And what that really is talking about is, you know, are we learning face to face? Are we learning virtually? Are we learning in a blended environment? And then based on that, what are some instructional methods that we can utilize to really keep the learner, you know, engaged and help them um, own some of that process? I love that For term sure. playlist. That's such a kid absolutely, friendly term absolutely. Too, because everybody knows what a playlist and, is. And the best right. part, you know, when we talk about co-designing, so and much. this was another thing that, you know, when I was teaching in the classroom, I tapped into my learners is when those kids are proficient on those pretests, right? They've shown you, and I, I don't know why I keep coming back to fractions, but they've shown you that they can add and subtract fractions with like denominators. <laughs> I would tap those kids and say, hey, can you put together six slides and a little screencast to show some of your friends how you knew how to do that? I'm going to give you three questions. You guys, they have sat through so many of our mini lessons as teachers. They know how we roll. They're going to mimic you. They're going to mock you. They're going to do all of that. And you just embrace it and smile saying, <laughs> yes, they were listening, right? But what they do is they can then create that screencast for you. And you can use that screencast on those playlists to for those kids. Yeah. That is brilliant. That that is that is a brilliant idea. And you know, I think one of the things that teachers find as scary is that what do you no. mean everybody Trust doesn't me. have to hear my mini lesson? <laughs> so but I love I love the way of utilizing kids because let's face it, as they teach others, it's it's getting more ingrained for them. And then that's enriching their learning instead of having them sit and get for sure hour. and usually for they're better sure. at teaching things Absolutely. than we are but let's be honest <laughs> well we have a, a last question that we ask not only everybody that comes on our podcast but also in interviews in our building as well so this is one of our favorite questions to ask oh boy oh boy it's, it's about knowing yourself <laughs> <laughs> What are three words that oh, others three who know words. you would use um, to describe you? I think I'm a doer. Um, I think I'm high energy. We're going to claim that as, as one. Um, I think that I'm a change agent. I think that I'm an innovator. Um, I... 
Yeah, that's a really hard question to put somebody on the spot for. I think that uh, <laughs> I've, I've had to use humor to get me through a lot in life, personally and professionally. And so I hope that, um, I don't know, funny might be a word that people use to describe me. Funny looking or funny, <laughs> right? I don't know. So. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, lo I love that. Well, Kate, I tell you what, with it, our listeners have gotten so yes. many takeaways from listening to you today. Um, you mentioned you don't want to plug, but plug away. Tell us, how can our listeners get in touch Absolutely. with you or find um, out so more about the Institute for Personalized I, um, As I mentioned at the onset, I work for the Institute for Personalized Learning. Initially, we started um, just here in southeastern Wisconsin supporting the 45 um, school districts within our sort of um region or area. And since then, we've really grown across the state of Wisconsin and, and thankfully and gratefully across our country. And really, our hope is that we can develop powerful learners, right? So when we talk about powerful learners, we talk about learners with purpose, with ownership, learners that live with wonder and efficacy and responsibility. And so if, you know, if we would love for, you know, listeners to kind of reach out. You can email me. We have a membership program, but really what we do is we come in, we support educators, we support teams, schools, districts, as they make this shift towards learner-centered practice or personalized learning. Um, and I use that term synonymously. We have a ton of self-paced workshops out there. Um, we have virtual live workshops, uh, which, you know, isn't quite as great as the face to face. Um, but, you know, pre pandemic, I was traveling quite a bit to go across the country and to support this work. So we will get back there. Um, but you, you, both of you, I think, have sat through my virtual lives. Even some of our virtual live workshops, even for four hours at a stretch, can be pretty, pretty fun and pretty great. Um, we do. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll give a plug for that. Oh, yeah. It, it was, it was, it was, oh, it was, that uh, is great to hear. That is great to hear. Um, we have, we offer um, groups to cohorts or teams um, around this idea of leading learner center practice. What does it mean to lead this work? Um, so when we talk about, you know, coming up with your why statement or what does this mean to us as a building? Like we, we um, work with just leadership groups and then we, we also work with educator teams that are re really ready to launch. Okay, so you have this framework and it's super daunting because there's 35 elements on there and where do I start? And so we'll work with educator teams to say, let's build that constellation out. Let's find an entry point for you. Um, we'll do professional development, coaching, sharing. Um, and so uh, the other wonderful thing about I feel like our team and what sets us apart at the Institute is we... Um, we really believe in the power of relationships. And for us, um, our number one goal is to develop a relationship with the schools and the teams and the principals and the teachers that we are working with. Um, you can call me on my cell phone. You can email me directly. I will tap you to remind you, hey, you signed up for this virtual self-paced workshop and you haven't logged in yet, sweetheart. You got to get moving, right? And so um, we are a small but mighty <laughs> team and we really just love to get in um, inside your classrooms and inside your buildings, whether that be face-to-face -face or virtually, and just sort of support you in the work. We know how hard it is. Um, our director, Brenda Vogues, um, is, a, is a former um, principal. She has 
um, created innovative schools around uh, learner-centered practice. She worked at the administrative level in the district up in Minneapolis, and she's come back and joined us um, here back in Wisconsin uh, and is leading our um, small but mighty team. Drea Setter is another one of my counterparts, and we just really love sitting down with teams and, and getting to know them and hearing where you're at, where, more importantly, where you want to go. Um, we are never going to come to you and tell you that we have all the answers because we do not. Um, but we will come to you with some ideas and some strategies and some stories and anecdotes. Um, and if we can't figure it out, we will figure out someone that can help you along the way. And so um, I can share my email with, with the two of you, and you are welcome to share it out um, with your colleagues. And if you're interested in becoming a member of the Institute, um, that would be awesome. And we would love to support you and your school districts. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kate, for being with us. Yes. And we will certainly link those in our show notes. And if any resources that you wanted to reference or share with our awesome. listeners. Thank you, you so much, ladies. We'll link those in the show notes as well. Okay. All right. Thanks Absolutely. For being Have a great us. night. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you joining us. Today, we were able to learn so many amazing things from Kate's expertise in leadership with personalized learning. As we continue our own journey and share with you with your journey of reimagining school. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, Reimagining Schools with Personalized Learning, featuring Kate Somerville, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. We would really love to know what your biggest takeaways are from today's episode. So send us a message on Twitter or tag us with your ideas using hashtag BeTheLeaderYouDeserve. Now, if this is your first episode, or if you've not listened to the entire first second, or third season, we'd surely love to know what you think. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts so that you get those first notifications Friday mornings um, before anyone else. And don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to give us to make sure that you get the most frequent updates, quotes, and inspirations to carry you through the week. Um, and just a reminder, Laura and I also post in our own personal account, so if you've not followed us there, or check those out as well. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on Apple Podcasts. They really do help us out when it comes to the ranking of the show, and we make it a point to read every single one of the reviews that we get. So have a great week, and don't forget to ask yourself, am I the leader I deserve, and what am I doing about it?